what really brought it to my attention was that a lot of people were talking about it and trying to figure out what shoe happened to be more aerodynamic than others. And so people were spending a lot of time and money buying a bunch of shoes, going to a wind tunnel, spending thousands of dollars to test to figure out what shoes they wanted to buy. And I thought, wow, maybe, maybe I can do that. Hello, and welcome to the November 3rd, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm Jeff Sankoff, your host, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I have a pretty packed show today, so I'm going to skip my usual introductory monologue in the interest of keeping the program to its usual running time of just about under an hour. On the medical mailbag, Coach Juliette Hockman and I discussed the wonder drug that has really delivered in a way that so few medications have in the past, and that is Ozempic, the once-weekly injectable that was originally developed as a treatment for diabetes, but had the unexpected side effect of promoting pretty dramatic weight loss. As the popularity of this and its identical twin, Wigovi, has taken off, it is conceivable that these medications could be used by multi-sport athletes, and that brings up some issues related to how these medications work and how they could impact training and racing. We discussed the medication, its mechanism of action, and what people should be thinking about if they are taking it or if they are considering it, and they are also training for triathlon. And that's coming up shortly. Later, for the guest segment, I'm trying something new for this episode. As you're well aware, if you are someone who regularly listens to this program, this is not a show that features new products or tech as a means of just showcasing things for the sake of promotion. Still, like you all, not just a coach, I am an age group triathlete, and I like to find new things. And on occasion, if I find something really interesting and innovative... I think it isn't really a bad idea to feature the person who brought the product in question from concept to reality. So today, I am interviewing Edward O'Malley, the engineer and inventor who developed the VeloVeta bicycle shoe that promises to add some free speed to your bike split by virtue of its novel aerodynamic design. I'm curious to know what you think of the interview, and if you would like to hear more or less of this kind of content. I do have one more of these already planned, but can do more or less if listeners like them, or on the opposite, if you detest them. Just let me know. You can add your comments in the Facebook group for the TriDoc Podcast. If you're not already a member, please do uh, sign up. You can find the group on Facebook, answer the three very easy questions, and I'll grant you admittance. Before I get started, though, as always, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. One such episode was released just last week, featuring a review of the medical literature on whether or not training can contribute to making you sick. That bonus episode and others like it are available on a private feed for all of my subscribers. Plus, for North American subscribers who sign up at the $10 per month level of support, they receive a special thank you gift in the form of a BOCO TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks in advance just for considering. It's time for the medical mailbag. 
that part of the program when I'm joined by Juliet Hockman, my friend and colleague from Life Sport Coaching. Juliet, welcome back. Hey, Jeff. So I'm a little under the weather. I'm going to sound a little bit congested. I apologize for any coughing or sneezing that comes up during this segment, but we've got a good topic that we're going to sink our teeth into. Before we get to that, though, I just want to mention a couple of people reached out to me after our last segment on the Dream Recovery Tape, and uh, they both had interesting things to contribute. So I just want to give a, a couple of seconds to that. The first person was Irina, or Irina, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly, Petrash who reached out on the TriDoc podcast Facebook group and mentioned that she was aware, I, I gather she is a researcher or a physician of some type, and she was aware of the fact that the nose is actually a, a producer of nitric oxide. And there were studies that suggested that when you force asthmatics to breathe through their nose, that nitric oxide actually improved asthmatics lung function. So I just want to remind you again that the dream recovery tape is this tape you put over your mouth that forces nose breathing. And one of the claims that they had on their website was that it could improve both oxygen uptake from the atmosphere and also that it could improve lung function. And I, at the time, was unable to find any studies that suggested that this was true. Well, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of this nitric oxide synthesis in the nose, except to say that these studies on asthmatics show that because when asthmatics breathe primarily through their nose, it's the formation of this nitric oxide that is then causing their lungs to work better. And they actually do improve their lung function and extract oxygen better. Now, is that going to be true for non-asthmatics? We don't know. They only looked at asthmatics in the two papers that I was able to see. But it is interesting, and it does suggest that there may actually be a biologic plausibility for the claim that nose breathing actually improves lung function and oxygen extraction, even though you're not increasing the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. So that was one thing. The second piece was another listener reached out and said that she had been using uh, a different kind of product, a different uh, type of tape, and uh, at the behest of her husband, who <laughs> felt like she was snoring a lot and he was uh, thinking that this might help, and it did. And not only did it decrease her snoring, but it actually helped her sleep significantly better. She felt like she slept more soundly. So an N of one, just an anecdote right there, but still although, one although person. I can attest having roomed with that particular listener at bike camp for a week that the snoring was intense. <laughs> <laughs> so and she's so, not using the tape still. <laughs> she was not using the tape back then. So if it's been effective, then I'm a big supporter. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to we'll have to bring that back to her. Okay. Well, that was last segment. Now we're going to move on to this episode segment. And it's a really interesting one. We're going to be talking about, as I mentioned in the last episode, we're going to be talking about the weight loss medications, Ozem and Wagovi, which are two different brands that are made by Novo Nordisk, the manufacturer, and they're basically the same thing. So they're, they're exactly the same drug. They're just marketed differently. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I came across an article in Training Peaks a little while ago that talked about things that athletes need to consider if they're going to be using Ozempic. And it got me thinking because you and I have talked, Juliet, about the fact that triathletes come in all different shapes and sizes. And I think that's wonderful. And I, we also know that a lot of 
people get into triathlon in a means to try and lose weight. And we know how difficult it is to lose weight. And so I got to thinking, I wonder if there are athletes out there who are using these medications. And so what does that mean for them? And what does that mean for them in specifically in training and doing triathlon? Right. So, and I think it, it might be worthwhile to pause just for a second before we launch into this super interesting discussion about this drug, which really has been groundbreaking for a lot of people who are not necessarily athletes in terms of the ability to lose weight. You and I have talked about this just at length offline about, you know, the importance of uh, sort of above everything else of fueling well for training and making sure that, you know, as you said in the introduction, athletes, triathletes, come in lots of different shapes and sizes. There are many different sort of quote unquote successful body types. And the most important thing is that, you, is that we as triathletes are fueling for our training and fueling for our racing. So, you know, a disclaimer is we're not necessarily recommending <laughs> this drug either way. We're just looking at its possible place or not place in our sport. Would you say that's a good way to look at it, Jeff? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, definitely, I, I know a couple of people who use this medication. They are not triathletes. And in speaking to a couple of people in background for this segment, I spoke with an obesity physician, uh, a Dr. Marissa Hoyne, who uh, works up in Montana. And I spoke with a nutritionist who is a friend of the podcast, Alex Larson. And both of them are aware of the medication, but not, neither of them are aware of any athletes that use the medication. Because let's face it, most athletes are not the 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 population that this medication is generally being marketed to. That being said, I think it's very realistic to imagine that there are age group triathletes who would be using this. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it because there are some very real impacts for athletes who are using this medication. Fair enough. Let's do it. All right. So, what is it? So Ozempic, Wigovi, I'm just going to refer to them as Ozempic because that's the that's the name that most people are probably familiar with. But the, the, the drug that it is, is semaglutide. And what it is, is it is a glucagon-like peptide, or GLP-1, receptor agonist. And what that means is that the semaglutide is acting on this receptor in the cells. So it mimics the natural GLP-1 hormone. And when this medication is injected, it has to be injected. It's, it's injected once a week, basically. And when it's injected into the subcutaneous tissues, it gets absorbed in a very slow fashion over the week. And once it's into the bloodstream, it acts on this receptor, increases insulin when blood sugar levels are high, it also has impacts on the gastrointestinal tract where it slows gastric emptying, which causes individuals to feel full for longer after eating, and it acts as an appetite suppressor. So I was going to say, I didn't want to interrupt, but the original purpose of this medication was not for weight loss, am I correct? That is right. It was developed primarily as an anti-diabetic medication, and it is quite a good medication for diabetes. The GLP-1 receptor 
allows for pretty dramatic increases in, in insulin. And I don't know the cellular physiology of it, but it seems to only happen when blood sugar levels in the serum are high. So there are other medications that we use for diabetes. So metformin is one. Another one is the sulfonylureas. There's a bunch of these. And the problem with the sulfonylureas, what they do is they also increase insulin insulin release, but the sulfonylureas increase insulin release all the time. And so you can actually get people who get hypoglycemic because of it. Metformin is a medication that people take that does not increase insulin release. Instead, it increases insulin sensitivity. And so as a result, people don't get hypoglycemic when they take metformin. Well, Ozempic is very similar. When people take Ozempic, they don't get hypoglycemic. And it's a really, really effective medication because as soon as sugar gets into the bloodstream, suddenly it starts to do its magic and blood sugar levels go up. But what people were finding when this medication was initially released onto the market is that diabetics were losing really profound amounts of weight. And that's what brought this to the attention of people. Right. So do we have any idea as to when a physician or a group of people said, huh, let's uh, move this over to the population of obese people who have perhaps tried to all types of different weight loss measures, but persistently failed. And then we both heard you being in the medical field, me just anecdotally through friends of mine who are doctors, that this is an incredibly effective drug for people trying to lose weight. Yeah, I don't know when the connection was made, but I think it was made pretty early because when they were looking at these studies, you know, again, they were looking primarily at blood sugar. That was really what they they were interested in. They wanted to know what was going on with these patients' blood sugar, and they were seeing that, oh, you know, blood sugar was really well controlled, so much better than what we see with other kinds of sugar control. So the way we follow blood sugar control in diabetes is by something called hemoglobin A1C. And basically, the higher your hemoglobin A1C is, the higher your sort of trending or average glucose is, and you want that number to be low. And when people were using the Ozempic, they were seeing the hemoglobin A1C levels dropping by like 1.5%. And that's a pretty substantial uh, number. So it just means that they were getting much tighter glucose control. And at the same time, they were just seeing that these patients are losing like 10% of their body weight. And it was a good 10%. Like they were losing body fat. And this is, and that's a good thing for diabetics. So I, I'm not sure like who then decided to try this on patients who were not diabetic, but I think it was pretty early that somebody just decided, you know what, this medication works so well, and it seems to be working because of its ability to suppress appetite. Let's try this in people who don't have diabetes. Right. But you also, in the numbers you sent me over, you sent over to me, which were super impressive in terms of the percentage of their body weight that they were losing, you also mentioned that you had to stay on the medication to keep the weight off. I, I believe that one study showed, or perhaps a couple studies showed, that when individuals went off the medication, something like 65% or 75% of the weight came back. Is that correct? Right, right. So it's an amazingly effective drug. Let's just talk about how effective. So patients who take the standard dosage of about 2.4 milligrams weekly, they tend to experience an average body weight reduction of 13.5%. I mean, 
That's that's, that's impressive. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. And that compares with a 3.8% average reduction in placebo groups who were followed for the same amount of time. Most of the patients, three quarters of them, lost at least 5% of their body weight. Two thirds of patients lost 10% and almost half lost 15%. So it, it's really, really impressive. And the sustained weight loss was demonstrated up to 68 weeks. So a year and a half, basically, taking this medication. And then you get to the downside, which is what you were just alluding to. And that is that once you stop taking it, then you get into trouble because you need to keep taking it. And once you stop, unfortunately, within a year, people who had lost weight, they put back about two thirds of the weight that they lost. And the reason for this is complicated. It's not completely understood, but it seems to be related to what Dr. Marissa Hoyne told me is called the set point theory. It's basically this idea that a person's body weight has, you know, whatever kind of maximum body weight your body has, your body wants to continue and, and defend that weight. So whatever adipose tissue amount it has, it says, this is where I should be, and anything less than that is starvation. So then once you do lose a little weight, your body says, oh, this is terrible, this is dangerous, and it kicks in all those anti-starvation things that it has, which unfortunately in this day and age, you know, we evolved really to be quite good at, because most of our evolutionary lives, I think, we spent starving, you know, at least half the year or more. So anyway, but they've shown in studies that People, for example, burn less calories when they sleep when they've lost weight. People a lot of times would do something like shake their leg a little bit normally. And then when people have lost weight, they don't really do that. So they're literally putting out less energy. And then food palatability goes up. And so people end up eating more without realizing it. So anyway, so I think that's why in general, most people cannot lose weight. So yeah, so that's a really interesting idea. And I want to read from a paper that I found on the set point theory, because it's super fascinating. I'm just going to read it's a couple of paragraphs here, because I think it's important. Since body weight is a major determinant of health, the regulation and preservation of body composition are life-saving issues. The central nervous system and peripheral systems regulate energy and nutrient balance by biological and behavioral mechanisms. Short-term controls include the initiation and termination of feeding, whereas long-term control of body weight is related to changes in energy balance and energy stores. So basically what that's saying is that our bodies have evolved all these different systems to make sure that our body weight stays kind of neutral. And the general idea is that human body weight is under sufficiently strong genetic and humoral or hormonal control, a view inspired by the theory of the so-called set point. This theory proposes a proportional feedback control system designed to regulate body weight to a consistent body inherent weight, namely the set point weight. The system, according to this theory, adjusts food intake or energy expenditure in proportion to the difference between the current body weight and the set point weight. So when you start taking these medications or anybody who starts to go on a diet, when they start losing weight, their body fights to defend their body weight. Their body will turn off and turn on all these different systems in order to try and preserve their body weight at what their body believes is a set point. So, for example, it's been shown that when people who are overweight start dieting, immediately they burn less calories at night. 
their metabolism slows down in an effort to try and preserve the weight that they have. And it's amazing. It's, it, that's why people who start losing weight, they feel fatigued. It's because they, their body believes that they're starving. And so they, they go into all these starvation and saving kinds of uh, processes to try and defend that body weight. It's yeah. just incredible. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's so archaic when you think about sort of back in the caveman era where you had these huge times of, of famine based on whatever the circumstances were. But of course, that's completely irrelevant. We're talking about someone in this day and age who's you know, 200 pounds overweight. <laughs> well, so that's the problem. So I yeah. asked Dr. Hoyne, I said, well, I don't understand. I mean, it can't be that we all have this set point that's so overweight. And she said, well, this paper says that a big part of it is determined in utero. So if our, if our mothers are overweight, the fetus is being given a, a, a lot of extra calories. And so the fetus in utero sets a, a, a set point that's high. And as we grow, as we get into adolescence, if we're exposed to you know a lot of calories, a Western diet, then our body sets that set point at that time. So it's not that genetically we're, we're hit with that set point, but rather it's, it develops based on our in utero experience and then also as we're growing. And as she explained to me, she said, it's really hard to reset that set point lower. It's very easy to set that set point higher, which makes mm-hmm. evolutionary sense, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, so interesting. So, so okay. she, she said, this is why people fail at dieting. This is why Ozempic stops. But she also told me that people who take Ozempic have amazing experiences. Like she said that, People's relationship to food just changes dramatically. They just, they have, they, they stop being hungry all the time. They, they stop worrying about when they're going to eat next. They stop worrying about eating in general because they just don't feel this desire to eat as often. And so they eat less and they, they eat smaller portions. And as the weight starts to come off, they start to have increased self esteem and they don't pour their emotions into their eating. It's it's really, really, she has said that this drug has changed her practice very dramatically and made for uh, a lot of very, very happy patients. So I can see how it's yeah. a good thing. However, yeah, <laughs> the way the drug works, the way the drug works means that athletes have to take caution. Now, she was quick to point out to me that her practice, she's an obesity specialist, her practice is not made up of triathletes. <laughs> no. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I can completely see an age group triathlete who comes into the sport. Maybe they started the sport with a weight loss goal. Maybe they didn't, but they look around and they see athletes of lots of different shapes and sizes and they decide, wow, I could be that much faster a runner or that much better a hill climber or whatever if I lost weight, right? And so I just, ooh, makes me, this makes me a little bit nervous. The, you know, just right. as we've seen perhaps male testosterone creams, right, being utilized in the age group ranks for reasons beyond what they're initially intended, you know, I could, I could totally see this being used even perhaps for the best intentions, but because fueling is so, such an important part of our sport, it just has disastrous consequences. So let's, let's talk about fueling versus Ozempic, if, if we can. So you're absolutely correct. There's two instances that I can imagine where people in our sport would be using this medication. One, they're already lean, 
but they feel like they need to lose more weight in order to succeed because they need to the power per weight watts per kilo, right? Watts per kilo. Yeah. And and then the second instance is going to be the age grouper who is in fact overweight and is struggling to lose weight even though they're training and and legitimately wants to lose weight. So in both those instances, both of those people are still going to be hamstrung by the things that Ozempic does. And that is the decreased appetite and the delayed gastric emptying specifically. Now we have to remember when you're training for a triathlon, you have to fuel. If you want to train efficiently, you've just got to fuel. And if your appetite is not there, you're going to have to do something in order to make sure you're getting in enough calories. So I spoke to Alex Larson, a friend of the podcast, nutritionist, and we had a, a brief discussion this morning. She does not have any clients who are using Ozempic, but she does know of clients who are taking other medications that suppress the appetite or has dealt with people who have delayed gastric emptying for other reasons. And she gave me some suggestions for what they could do to try and manage that. Before you before you get to those suggestions, which I really want to hear, and I think we all do, can you just define gastric emptying? I mean, I think we all understand the concept of suppression of appetite, right? That's pretty self-explanatory. But gastric emptying, can you just pause for a moment on what that means for absolutely. a triathlete? Yeah, absolutely. So when you eat something or you drink something, it gets to your stomach, and then it has to pass from your stomach into the intestine. So the process of it moving from the stomach into the intestine is basically the st stomach is gastric and it has to empty. So it's gastric emptying is the process of things moving from the stomach into the duodenum and then into the small intestine. And there are various things that can delay that. That's why during a race, protein and fat is not a good idea because protein and fat both delay gastric emptying. Carbohydrates do not. Ozempic delays gastric emptying. So is gastric emptying the process by which we turn basically carbs into fuel, or is it more just literally the process of moving it through your system and having it exit you know, it's just the process the of it moving. So when things okay. get into your stomach, when things get into your stomach, there's the breakdown of by the acid medium of the stomach, but then it has to pass into the duodenum before it can get absorbed. All the absorption begins beyond the stomach. And so gastric emptying is important for absorption to begin. Got it. Okay, so, thank you. So let's hear, let's hear what Alex had to say about how people with delays in gastric emptying and also people with appetite suppression can deal with that when they are taking this medication. If there was an athlete that was either on, on Ozepic or on a medication that had delayed gastric emptying, we definitely would want to try and be strategic in the fueling because my biggest concern would be having some sort of like GI upset during the workout because there would still be fuel or something sitting in their stomach that would be jostling around, especially while running, um, that could cause, you know, nausea, heartburn, all of like these unpleasant issues that could impact performance. So that would be where we would need to be most strategic is how they're fueling before their workout and then also during. And then I had this other thought, oh, carb loading would be another area too, where they might not be able to hit their carb loading numbers and they might need to start their carb load earlier because they're not able to consume as much. Um, but just to get those glycogen stores loaded up for a big race would be another aspect of that as well. But when it comes to fueling for the, either the training or the racing itself, I would look to more liquid-based nutrition because that actually gets digested a little bit faster than the solid 
fuel sources. So that would be something that I would look to. And then another option I would probably try, and this is going to be very individualized based off of the athlete as well, but something like a maple syrup, like untapped would be a product that I would maybe look to because that's just going to be a straight sucrose and it's actually going to get digested pretty darn quick, even if there is some, you know, obviously delayed gastric emptying. But looking for the fuel sources that are going to be the fastest, just so that we're helping potentially alleviate any GI issues. So it sounds like what Alex is saying here is that for athletes who are potentially interested in using a medication like this, the most important thing for them to think about for both longer training rides and also for race fueling is making sure that their carbs are in the form of liquid rather than solids, because it'll be much easier for that uh, process of GI emptying. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And uh, she also said, I mean, she was pretty blunt. She's like, people on this medication are probably not training for triathlon because they're just not going to be able to fuel adequately. She feels pretty strongly that it's, if you have an appetite suppression like that, that you're going to be losing weight, it's going to be very hard to train effectively for a triathlon. So that was her thoughts. But again, she doesn't have any people who are taking it and she doesn't have any athletes who are taking it. So uh, speculation, but I think speculation from an informed source. So, Well, and I also feel like this is a little bit the tip of the iceberg. Like it, it might be that athletes aren't using this particular drug yet, but there will be forms of this particular medication or this drug substance that will be utilized by athletes in the future. So it's the same sort of set of criteria and recommendations. Yeah. And just before we finish on this, there's a couple other things I think we should touch on. Number one is the adverse effects. So one of the adverse effects that's been seen with Ozempic is acute kidney injury. And Dr. Hoyne was telling, oh, and nausea is another one. So Dr. Hoyne mentioned that nausea and vomiting is very common in the first week that people take this. And they think that the acute kidney injury is related to that because people can't take in enough fluids. And so they get dehydrated and that might be contributing to acute kidney injury injury that might be caused by the drug itself, but is made worse by the fact that people get dehydrated. And I got concerned about that possibility because, as we all know, you're doing triathlon, you're training for triathlon, you're often in a dehydrated state. And so the potential for acute kidney injury is obviously much higher. So that was something that I think athletes need to be aware of. And the other adverse effects are are much less frequent, things like pancreatitis and bowel obstruction. They tend to occur much less frequently and not something that really raised to the point that Dr. Hoyne thought it was something that people needed to worry about that much. She's never actually seen either of those in her practice. And she, as I said, has a pretty extensive population of patients that are taking it. So I, I think... At the end of the day, this is a very personal choice. I, I I would never advocate for someone who's normal body weight or even mildly overweight to be taking this. I think that this is really designed for people who have struggled with weight loss for a long time, who are obese in whatever way you choose to define that. doesn't have to be with BMI. And it's clearly very, very effective. So I think that people who are who are triathletes and who have struggled with weight loss and are thinking about using this, it's it's certainly something that they consider. They have to know it's not cheap. It's, and it's not covered by Ozempic insurance. For, and it's not, well, Ozempic is not. Ozempic is covered by insurance only for diabetics and it's like 800 bucks a month. And then Wagovi, which is approved for weight loss, apparently is also not covered by insurance because it's very expensive. It's over $1,000 a month. So uh, even though it's the same thing. 
So yeah, it's, it's very expensive, but I certainly can understand why people would pay that if they have the disposable income, but they're going to have to make a choice about whether or not they're going to be able to continue training and participating in triathlon if they're taking it. So just uh, things yeah. to consider. For sure. And I think that, you know, maybe as we wrap this up, whether you are curious about taking Ozempic or a similar drug or not, if you are in the position where you're trying to lose weight while training for triathlon, particularly long course, really consider investing in working with a professional so that you can both you can achieve dual goals, right? The goal of both losing weight, if that's a goal that is appropriate for you, as well as fueling for performance, because it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky for everybody, but I think it's particularly tricky for people who are, are watching numbers. So um, whether Ozempic is involved in this or not, please, you know, please think about that. <laughs> Yeah, could not agree with you more, Juliet. Well, it's been another great conversation. This is a fascinating topic. If you have any thoughts on this, or if you have questions that you'd like us to consider answering on the Medical Mailbag, please do reach out. You can leave a comment in the private Facebook group for the TriDoc Podcast. Just search for the group and answer the three very easy questions. I'll grant you admittance. You can join the conversation there, or you could send me an email at tri underscore doc at iCloud.com. And until next time, Juliet, I'll look forward to uh, whichever topic comes up and we will have a good conversation about that then thanks jeff looking forward to it If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, then you know that this is not a show that looks to do fluff pieces or serve up softball questions to the manufacturers of products targeted to multi-sport athletes who are looking to maximize their abilities when training, racing, or recovering. Still, as a competitive age group triathlete myself, I am not immune to the pull that fancy new tech has on each and every one of us. And as I age, I am always looking to see if something is coming down the pike that might, just maybe, help me out with some marginal gains. Now, I have said on this program before and will continue to say that there is no shortcut to results. You have to put in the work if you want to achieve lofty goals in endurance sport. Furthermore, trying to buy your way to speed is a bit of a Sisyphean task that will no doubt result on only in your being much poorer and not necessarily that much faster. With all that said, in the next couple of months, you're going to hear me bring some guests onto this program who've worked incredibly hard in efforts to try and solve specific problems that triathletes face, and in so doing, have developed an interesting product that I, and hopefully you, may be interested in learning about. At no point that you, at no point should you take the fact that I am discussing these products as an endorsement. However, I will tell you what I think about whatever it is that we are talking about, and I will tell you if I purchased the item in question. The first such guest and product comes to me today by way of my friend and a true friend of the podcast, Joe Wilson. Triathlon Joe has been a guest on this program in the past, and he and I have become friends since we first met online in the run-up to Ironman Indiana in 2021. This year, Joe was out in Colorado for the Ironman Boulder 70.3 when he bought some really interesting bike shoes at the expo for the event. He told me all about them, and I spent a lot of time looking into them myself and uh, the man who invented them, Edward O'Malley. Ed started rowing in college at Johns Hopkins, where he earned his BS in mechanical engineering. He then went on to work as an engineer for the International Space Station. Besides being an actual rocket scientist, Edward got his MBA and founded a couple of companies before somewhere along the way getting himself into triathlon. 
He then designed and developed the Velo Veta Triathlon Bike Shoe, and that is what he is joining me today to discuss. Edward, thank you so much for being here on the TriDoc Podcast. Hey, thanks. I'm excited to be here. All right. First and foremost, before we talk about shoes, I do want to hear about your experience in Lati, Finland. You just recently came back from uh, participating in the World Championships. We're recording this today, September the 7th, which I should mention is my daughter's 18th birthday. Happy birthday, Sam. I'd love to hear what your experience was. It's the first time I haven't been to a World Championships in quite a few years. How, How did it go for you? Yeah, I think it's one of the best world championships I've been to in terms of just the atmosphere of the venue, how well organized it was. It was a really beautiful and challenging course without being too brutal. One of the really great things that I was able to experience from the spectator point of view rather than the competitor point of view was that the swim hugs along the shore in downtown Lati for quite a ways. And you can walk along and spectate the swim for the first several hundred meters. So I got to spectate the women's swim the day before my race. And then even on my race, because my start was so late, I got to spectate basically the entire men's swim. So it was really fun, both as an athlete and as a fan. And uh, yeah, it, it was really one of my favorites that I've been to. Having been there on the ground and experienced the conditions, uh, do you have any notion as to why we saw such a topsy-turvy pro men's race? Uh, I had never heard of most of the people who finished in the top 10. Was there something about that race that might have lent to it having that kind of result? Well, I think it was more about something about the race in Singapore the week before rather than the race in Lati. So basically everyone who raced in Singapore the week before got very, very sick. And that included a lot of the favorites for 70.3 worlds. And so you saw what you might consider to be underperformances from a lot of the favorites. And I don't think it has anything to do with the course, but the fact that they had been very sick for a week, it was, I don't want to say disappointing because I think, I think he made the exact right decision, but Jason West wears Villaveta shoes. We, I have no sponsorship agreement with Jason. He doesn't get any money or anything from me, but he wears the shoes and loves them and was going to race in them. And I was really looking forward to seeing what he could do at a world championships. And he made the correct decision to pull out. And yeah, I think, I think that that made for a rough world championships for a lot of the top athletes. Yeah, I could accept that for certainly a lot of the guys, but then there's people like Jackson Laundry who did not participate in Singapore. There were there were a fair number of athletes that I expected to do better who Steve McKenna from Australia, a lot of guys who were there who looked to be in top form and just really underperformed and then you have all these guys who I've never even heard of finishing the top 10. It was really interesting. So we'll we'll see what happens as next year progresses if we start to hear more of people like Rico Borgen for example. Is oh, I'm sure we will. Gonna, yeah. yeah, I'm yeah, sure we will. We'll and, and you know that's the reason we, we race. We can't just say well the top ranked guy is the guy who's going to win. You know, anything can happen on race day and that's why it's exciting. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's talk about the Veloveta. Tell us what it is for people who don't know and uh, what got you to even consider developing such a product. Yeah, so Veloveta is a shoe, a cycling shoe, really with a, a triathlete in mind from the design standpoint, but it could be used for any road cyclist. And it has aerodynamics as a design factor built in from the front end. And we used 
computational fluid dynamics, which is essentially a simulated wind tunnel in a computer to, to craft the design and, and, and change the shape. And what we came up with as a way to reduce aerodynamic drag is an interesting mechanism where the, the closure of the heel, the closure for the shoe is on the back and it's not a boa, it's a lever that you open up and it releases wires that go through the sole to open up the shoe and let you slide your shoe, your foot in, and then you close the lever and that tightens the shoe. And there's a little dial inside that lever that allows you to pre-select the, your preferred tightness for the shoe. And so it's all ready to go. And so when you close that lever, just one quick motion of your hand, it goes immediately to your preferred tightness. And so that allows for a very quick transition. You don't have to be fiddling with a boa or straps to get it set. You just slide your foot in, close the lever, off you go. So, you know, really we wanted a shoe that was an aerodynamic shoe. It was going to help you perform from a speed point of view. It was going to be a really good, quick transition shoe from the point of a triathlete and a shoe that was going to be comfortable and allow you to apply power to the pedals throughout a longer race. And so that means not only a comfortable fit, it means adequate ventilation for longer hot races as we triathletes frequently do. And, and so that was the concept. Yeah. And full disclosure to listeners, I, I own a pair of the Velvetta shoes that I paid for, and I just recently started using them. I have not raced in them yet. I am racing this weekend, but I'm not going to race in the shoes because I feel like I haven't really used them enough yet to, to have full experience with them. And I don't want to show up at a race and use them for the first time. The closure mechanism is really what makes them most unique. And I will put a link to Velovetta's videos on their website that kind of show you exactly what Edward's talking about. But basically, the only way that these shoes have an opening is on the heel, and it makes them really easy to slip on and off. I've already started practicing when I'm on the trainer in the basement, just keeping them on the pedals and putting the shoes on while I'm spinning and then taking them off at the end of my trainer rides. And I could see how they will lend to making that a very easy process, not having to fiddle with any kind of bow dials or straps or anything like that. So for that purpose, they seem great. The other thing is they are exceptionally stiff. I, I like a really stiff shoe and they, they are very stiff. You said that you used uh, computational fluid dynamics to develop the shoe because you were really looking for aerodynamic benefits. And I assume not having any closures on the front of the shoe is really why. That, that's, that's what makes these shoes aerodynamic? I would say that that's a minor portion of what creates the aerodynamics and the really the the meat of it was so when you're i don't know if this will be online the video at all if i if i can use visual aids or maybe i'll just try to discuss it in a way that yeah i'll have to discuss it <laughs> what the most of the work from the aerodynamic development point of view was to reduce the amount of low pressure developed behind your foot and so the way aerodynamic drag works is you have high pressure of the wind pushing against your foot or your chest or whatever, and then airflow separation that happens behind you and turbulence that happens behind you creates low pressure. So you have high pressure pushing against low pressure, and that pushes you backwards. And so really my effort was to reduce the amount of low pressure behind the foot as much as I could. And so what that means is trying to keep that airflow attached 
and flowing smoothly around the foot as long as I possibly can before it becomes turbulent and swirly behind your foot. And so I'm trying to reduce the size of that low pressure area behind your foot. And therefore, there's a less of a difference between the high pressure on the front and the low pressure on the back. And so that force pushing you back becomes a little bit less. It's the same concept as the tail on the aero helmets, I gather. Yeah, sim- sort of similar concept. Drop shape. Yep, yep, same concept as that. Con- same concept as having having long, you know, elongated tubes on your bicycle or the cam tails that that Trek became famous for. It's all the same, the same purpose, which is to keep that airflow attached as long as you can and reduce the low pressure behind you. Now, fluid dynamics are not the same as gas dynamics. So how how much does it translate? If you're using computational fluid dynamics, how much does that actually translate to real-world airflow? Well, I mean, ga- gas fluid, it, it's all treated the same in this kind of thing. And, and you know, the exactly the way it behaves, I don't want to get too into the weeds. But, you know, the, 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 the computer simulations have a number of limitations. And there are a number of real world interactions that to, to try to simulate accurately would be, let's call it too expensive. And in addition, it's a very, very stable, perfect environment. You don't have wind gusts. The wind direction's not changing. Your, your, you know, your pedaling isn't changing. Everything is perfect and stationary, not stationary, but perfect and, and very, very controlled. And the real world isn't like that. And the other thing is, is all people are different. The shape of people's feet are different. The way they pedal are different. And so in the real world, results are going to vary certainly a lot more than you would see in a CFD simulation on a computer and even quite a bit more than you're going to see in a wind tunnel. So with this kind of effort, I'm trying to make the best effort that I can of making something that's going to be fast. It's not something that I can say, this shoe is going to make you X seconds faster on this distance. I can say this test gave this result that shows this many seconds, but that's not the same thing to say that this is exactly what you're going to experience. So you know, I, I want a shoe that had a real analytical effort at reducing aerodynamic drag to give you the best chance of having, you know, a really good result in the real world. But that can't be the only factor of a shoe. You know, the most important factor, kind of kind of like what you talk about in that just buying all the aero goodies isn't by itself going to make you faster. You need to be able to put that power into the pedals. And so to do that effectively, you have to be comfortable you can't be sitting there thinking, man, my feet really hurt. Because even if you have a really high pain tolerance, that's going to cause you to do something that's less ideal, whether it's changing your position or pedaling less hard or just getting really frustrated. So, you know, that's remains of paramount importance in, in most aspects of equipment for triathlon. Now, with that said, you have taken these shoes to a wind tunnel to test them. And, and what have you found? Yeah, so we took it to a wind tunnel and we tested against a few different shoes. I was the rider on board. And so this is the experience for me and my gear and my position and my pedaling style and my foot shape and all that kind of stuff. We we found that against a, a traditional tri-shoe with a big Velcro strap across the front, 
if you're normally a five hour Ironman type of person and you switch shoes, the results for me were I saved somewhere around four minutes versus, you know, with my four hour, five hour Ironman in the big Velcro strap shoes versus these shoes. The most aerodynamic competitor that I tested, the, that Velcro strap shoe was expect, as expected, the worst aerodynamic performer of the group. The fastest aerodynamic performer that I tested was a very popular high-end double boa shoe. And that one I think is more appropriate to compare on a 40K time trial. It's more of a cyclist shoe than a triathlon shoe. And so if you're normally a, a one-hour 40K rider, wearing wearing this shoe that you'll see a lot of time trialists wearing out there and you switch you save somewhere around 30 to 34 seconds i believe over the one hour time trial not not huge but not insignificant that that can definitely make the difference in some races certainly between not getting on a podium, getting on a podium. And I, I've seen races decided by less than that between first and second. So just by changing equipment. And and when we talk about these kinds of time differences, they usually are at a higher speed to get the biggest difference. But it's also true that if you're slow, you tend to get a bigger benefit from these aero changes because you're out there for longer. And therefore, the aero benefits are actually there for a longer period of time. So am yeah. I getting that right? I, I always struggle. I always struggle with aero benefits a little bit. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And it's, it's tough because, you know, in wind tunnel testing, you typically do test at a higher speed than most people are going to be riding at. And the reason you do that is because it, me- it makes the differences a lot bigger. And it's easier to see where those differences are but you can't say, oh, well, at 35 miles an hour in the wind tunnel, we save 10 watts. Therefore, you're going to save 10 watts. It doesn't work that way. As you go down in speed, that watt number comes down a lot. So what you really need to do to find out that comparison, and this is how I came up with those numbers for a five-hour Ironman or a one-hour 40K, is you recalculate everything for the lower speed and the lower drag, and all those differences come down a lot. But those are much more realistic numbers an athlete can expect. And yeah, you know, a a really fast rider will see a bigger reduction in drag because they're going faster, but also because they spend a lot less time experiencing that benefit, their overall time benefit is actually smaller than an age grouper who's going a lot slower. Yeah, and you add these things up, right? I mean, putting a disc wheel in the back, using an aero helmet, aero bars, shoes, faster clothing, uh, all these things add up. And that's what we talk about with marginal gains. You get a minute here, a minute there, a minute there. And then all of a sudden, with the same amount of training, you could save 10 minutes just by having equipment. So that that is, that's the whole purpose of all of this. I, what is it that got you thinking in the first place? You know, I'm going to look at a shoe. Like why, why was the shoe the thing you decided to look at as opposed to anything else as the equipment? Well, two reasons. What really brought it to my attention was that a lot of people were talking about it and trying to figure out what shoe sort of accidentally happened to be more aerodynamic than others. And so people were spending a lot of time and money buying a bunch of shoes, going to a wind tunnel, spending thousands of dollars to test to figure out what shoes they wanted to buy. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that to me demonstrates real, like a real demand for this. People really want to figure out how to solve this problem and no one had done, to at least to my satisfaction, a really good 
analytical ground up effort at trying to make a shoe aerodynamic on purpose. Um, and I have a background in mechanical engineering and I thought, wow, maybe, maybe I can do that. And so I basically, I started fiddling around at home on my computer to see if I could do a simulation that would, you know, with, with a design that would reduce drag. I very quickly came to the conclusion that my home computer was not nearly powerful enough to come up with results that I could believe, which was an excuse to, to put together a pretty monster computer machine as, as, as an engineering geek at home and, and then started doing lots and lots of simulations and, and the results started looking good. And is there another project you would, are, are thinking about looking at after this? I mean, now that you've solved the shoe problem, is there another piece of equipment you're thinking, well, I could look at that next? Yeah, there is. You know, I, I think I, there's there's a few things more that I want to do in shoes before I start tackling a completely new problem. And I, you know, I think that there are other solu- other things to think about in shoes rather than only aerodynamics. I think that there's a lot to learn from the trail running shoe industry that has, I think, really evolved a lot in the last couple of years that you can apply to gravel and mountain bike shoes. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that and, and what we can learn from our, our trail running brethren that, that can be applied to mountain bike and, and, and gravel shoes and, and, and also some things about road shoes as well. And so I, I think the next thing I might do is kind of tackle a couple of those problems and expand that, that, that shoe family a little bit, but you know, the, the pull towards doing aerodynamic analysis is just fun for me to do. And so I think about helmets, I think about kits, I think about bike front ends. I've done, I have a prototype bottle that I've been riding for years now, actually, that I did a bunch of CFD work on that I 3D print at home. And I really like it. I think that if I could figure out a way that it would be really mass compatible with a lot of different front ends, maybe that would be a product I make. Front ends are so disparate these days. And going through a lot of innovation themselves, which is really exciting. I worry about trying to release a, a one-size-fits-all product into this rapidly changing aspect of bike tech. But that's something I've been working on, too. So what's the state of Veloveta right now? Where is it available? What do people do if they want to learn more? Yeah, so mostly it's available online at my website, veloveta.com. And we have information there about the development process and the wind tunnel testing. We have videos about how the shoes work, how to set up the shoes. There is a kind of a learning process with these shoes that's different from anything else where you first buy them on what's involved in getting them set up properly for you. We have some like tutorials on flying mounts. I think I may expand that here soon. Um, and uh, we are available at our Vada Tri Company in the Denver area. If, if somebody wants to go try on some shoes, I know buying shoes online can be a bit of a scary or pain in the butt process. And so if you live somewhere near Denver, I encourage you to head out to our Vada Tri Company and try some on. And we, we might expand our offering at, at physical stores a little bit. We're experimenting with that. And th- there may be another store coming online uh, very soon here. And is it your intention to have more of a presence at some of these races the way you did at Boulder, which is how I came to learn about your existence? Because I, I will confess that I had never heard of you until then. Yeah. And, and you know, that's not surprising. You know, it's something I'm thinking about. Iron Man gave me a pretty good deal 
to to have a presence at the Boulder 70.3. It's local for me. So the expenses involved are minimal. And it's always sort of tricky to to sort of figure out what is the value of the exposure that you got. Like I can say, okay, I sold X number of pairs of shoes and therefore that here's here's what the value was. You know, in actuality it's more than that because you have people that are exposed to you that may or may not buy later or tell their friends. And so it's still something I'm I'm looking at. I don't have any other races to attend on the calendar right now. Well, I ha- as I said early in the interview, I own a pair. I have had them now for a couple of weeks. I've been using them principally on the trainer. And my experience with them so far has been really, really positive. I really love the ease of putting them on and off. I find them quite comfortable. The reason I got them, I've been riding with a pair of Physic. Oh, gosh, can't remember the model name, the the high-end physics shoes, which are at about the same price point as the Velovetta. So the Velovetta are not inexpensive shoes. They, You want to tell us uh, what they retail for, Edward? $405. So they're $405, and the physics shoes that I had retailed for about the same amount of money. So I was not put off by that price, but I think... For people who are looking for triathlon shoes, this is obviously going to be something that people probably in the more competitive range or people with more disposable income are going to be looking at. That being said, my experience with them has been really positive so far. I find them very comfortable, more comfortable than the physics shoes that I had, which is why I was looking to change because the physics shoes, uh, for as much as I paid for them, I found them to be not as comfortable as I had hoped. And I found them to be a little kind of almost a little floppy when I pull up on the pedal. I don't usually pull up on the pedal that much, but when climbing, I, I sometimes do. And I didn't like the lack of stiffness. And the Velovetta, despite the fact that they only have the closure is the way the closure works is when you pull up on the lever, the wires kind of pull down. So it's almost as if you only have a single boa at the front end of the shoe near the ankle. But it surprisingly gives a very, very secure fit across the whole foot. And I have found them to be very, very comfortable, very stiff, and very easy to get on and off when coming to... Now, I haven't used them in a race yet, but I have, as I said, practiced taking them on and off as if I was going to do a a flying mount and dismount. And I have found them to be quite easy. There is an extra step needed for the dismount. You take the shoe off and then you have to close the lever, but it has. I find that to be quite an easy process and not something that I think would uh, cause any problems. Well, Edward, I can't thank you enough for taking some time for talking to me today on the podcast, for bringing this information about this really interesting and novel concept product that you developed by yourself and brought to market. I think that triathlon is such a, an interesting sport because it brings together so many people from so many different backgrounds, but to see someone... Like yourself, I recently had a chance to speak to Soj uh, Jibowu, who is the founder of Varlo, who similarly has a really interesting background story and developed the product and, and brought it to market and has had huge success. And so I hope that the future will hold the same kind of success for you and your company as well. Edward O'Malley is an engineer, but he's also a triathlete and the founder and developer of the Veloveta Shoe. The links to the Veloveta website will be in the show notes. I hope that you will take a look just out of interest, just to see how interesting this shoe is and what a novel development it is in bicycle shoes. Edward, thanks again for joining me here today on the TriDuck Podcast. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. 
Okay, so as you heard, that interview with Edward O'Malley was recorded on September the 7th, and here we are at the very beginning of November, and I'm just releasing it now as part of the podcast. So why the delay? Well, essentially, as I mentioned in the interview, I had just gotten a pair of Elevettos myself, but I hadn't yet used them. Well, now that's changed. I have used them. I used them in the recent North Carolina 70.3, and I wanted to release the interview after I had had a chance to actually use the shoes so that I could give you my impressions of how I enjoyed them or didn't in a race situation. So I have used the shoes on the trainer. I had used them quite a bit to get uh, comfortable in them, to break them in a little bit, and to also get comfortable with the way that the shoes open and close so that I could get familiar with putting them on and off when it came time to do transition. Now, North Carolina has a bit of a unique kind of transition situation. You are not allowed to clip your shoes into the pedals. So I had to put my shoes on and then run with my shoes on before getting into the bike. But I still feel like I can give uh, a pretty good sense of how easy they are to put on. And certainly for getting off the bike at getting into transition two, I can tell you how easy they were to get off. And of course, their performance while riding. I can tell you without reservation that I am very, very happy that I purchased these shoes. Now, this should not serve as an endorsement. This should just tell you my own personal experience with them. And I am very pleased with them. I think they are worth Worth the significant expenditure. No doubt they are expensive bicycle shoes, but you are getting what you pay for. They are exceptionally well made. They are very, very stiff. They perform really, really well. And the simplicity and the quickness with which they can be put on and removed for getting in and out of transition is really, really remarkable. And I applaud Ed for developing a shoe that really, really has transition in mind, as well as performance when you are riding the bike. Now, do they provide the aero benefits that Edward has found in the wind tunnel for him? I can't say. I haven't tested them myself, but uh, regardless, the shoes are definitely exceptionally comfortable, and for me anyways, very, very quick to put on and off, very convenient, and I am very, very pleased with the fact that I bought them. So that's my end of one review. I hope that you found this segment useful, and again, like I said at the beginning of the program, I'm very interested in knowing if you would like to hear more of this kind of content or not. Just let me know. Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or leave a comment in the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. Thanks for listening. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or... Join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit TriDocCoaching.com or LifeSportCoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. 
You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.